Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the Roy Hodgson gif of the podcast. Could it be? Could it be? Oh no, it could not. And I'm joined by the Dan James goal of the podcast, Tom Alderson. That's one for the collectors. And finally, the failed Urente roulette of the podcast. <laughs> Don't worry if you missed it, you'll see it again soon enough. It's Darren Driver. Darren, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I just tried that move downstairs and uh, knocked the telly off the wall, and now I need my ACL reconstructing as well. So it went, but it still looked more graceful than when Urente tried it. So you know, a, a good day was had by all in the end. Yeah, I'm good, thanks, John. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Another man who is as graceful as Diego Urente is Tom Alderson. How are you, Tom? I, I'm good, thanks, John. Yeah, I've, I spent all weekend watching sport, and it was going, it was going well. I was having a great time. I watched England rugby. Win. I watched Hamilton win the F1, and then my weekend was firstly ruined by Leeds United, then followed up by Seattle Seahawks, who are my NFL team, who are maybe shitter than Leeds at the moment, equally badly run, need, in need of a massive overhaul. There's a lot of similarities, actually, so <laughs> yeah, it was all going well until about half past four on Sunday. Well, I watched Freiburg, my German team, and they lost too, so I had a double whammy, one after the other, 2.30 on Sunday, 4.30 on Sunday. Mine was a bit like that, it was like half four Sunday, 9.25 Sunday, so like pretty close together. And the snooker champion of champions, they've taken to wearing really bad polo shirts that look like bin bags, so that, that also <laughs> ruined my weekend. <laughs> Well, on the topic of having weekends ruined, let's just jump into the the game summary. So the game that we're talking about is, of course, the 2-1 loss to Spurs down in London. We never talk about the London curse anymore, do we? But It's just a given at this point. Yeah, we just lose everywhere, so yeah. We went into this one having heard rumours that Spurs, spores, uh, that Spurs <laughs> might try spores. a 3-4-1-2 formation, but in the end, Antonio Conte stuck with a 3-4-3, three, three, uh, the one that he's been using so far. Uh, not many changes there, uh, other than for injuries. 
But the Leeds lineup was unusual to say the least. We know that three four three means four four two, so we knew we had a back four, but we didn't know that we were going to have three centre backs and a central midfielder as our back four. But that's how it transpired. So Pascal Strout was kept at left back. Diego Llorente was shifted to right back with Calvin Phillips dropping into the space that he vacated. And ahead of them, we saw Forshaw and Click make up the midfield with Harrison and Dallas on either side. And then we saw Joe Gelhart given a starting debut alongside Dan James. Dan James playing in that sort of outside forward role that we've seen Rafinha playing in recently, and, and Dan James too, for that matter. In the first half, Spurs gave Leeds a lot of space and possession to build up, and this worked out pretty well for us, allowing us to progress the ball into wide attacking areas and work the ball into the box as well. Um, and although Leeds didn't create many good chances in this period, they did eventually create a goal that way. So Jack Harrison played the ball nicely across the six-yard box for Dan James to stab home. Uh, but in the second half, everything changed. Spurs went man for man and pushed up much higher, stopping Leeds from being able to push the ball out comfortably. And this saw Spurs dominate possession much more and generate a lot more dangerous moments, although both of their goals came from sloppy defending from Leeds. Um, and so... In the end, I guess 2-1 is probably a fair result, but the ease with which Spurs took control of the game in the second half was a little bit worrying to watch as a Leeds fan. So that was the summary. Now it's the time of the show when I interrogate the other guys on some questions about the game. So let's jump in with the interrogation. So, Darren, how do you feel about this game? Do you focus on the positives of the first half or the negatives of the second? Um, I don't know whether I focus entirely on either of those, to be honest. I think I think um, I just kind of come back to a, uh, as we were saying off air just before we started, um, and as we said repeatedly throughout the season, that that what it feels like is when our problems are exposed, or when when teams face us uh, in a way which which doesn't allow us to play to our strengths, then then we really struggle to impose ourselves on on games now what I will say is that I think that's true of us but I also do think it's true of probably a lot of teams in the league or ones or any, any of the teams that play with a defined identity like we do will struggle when teams take proactive measures to stop that team from from doing that but I think it just kind of it just I, I sort of felt more resigned than than either positive or negative than anything else really it was just like as soon as you know like um, as soon as Spurs um, twigged on that if they let their skillful individual runners, Lucas Mora, for example, run at us, that they were going to cause havoc. And, and that happened for the first time in the ninth minute, by the way. And then and then for the rest of the game, you know, for the rest of that first half, they didn't really do it or, or Leeds played in a way which prevented us prevented them from doing it um but as soon as they managed to start doing that consistently I just kind of knew what was going to happen and it was we were going to end up caving in giving away a stupid ugly goal because you know hardly ever we hardly ever see good goals scored against us it's always something stupid and ugly and scrappy because our man marking system has broken down um so it just kind of confirmed a lot of things that we already knew I think is 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 the way I feel about it overall I think yeah, Tom, I'll come to you on this because it does feel as though a lot of people were taking mainly the positives out of the game and saying, well, this was largely because we sort of ran out of steam in the second half and when we get a full complement of players back, then we're going to sort these problems out. What's your general take on this? 
so I actually came out of it, and I I am fairly positive about it, to be honest, but not for any of that bollocks that we get the players back, we're going to be better, because that's, that's just not true. I just like, we have we have these problems, and they're not going to come... Like, Bamford will alleviate those problems, but the other players being back, I don't think will do. The positives I took from that were, in the first half, like, they just... The stuff that... There was some stuff that we haven't seen this season, where it's like the second half... And this might be a completely dumb way to look at it. There was like it's stuff that we already knew was bad. So there's nothing I haven't learned anything new in the second half, whereas there's stuff good stuff in the first half that we haven't seen so far this season really. Like in the first half we looked good without Rafinha, which if you compare that to the Southampton game, that was just we we were well, the Southampton game is probably the worst we played in about four years, so anything on top of any improvement on that was gonna be good. We had an actual function in central midfield for the first time this season. Um and well, as well as like as stuff like Jack Harrison had his probably his best game of the season. Um, and I'm going to do a massive Josh Hobbs style self plug and say that Dan James scored a sterling like goal, which I I mentioned on Thursday night. So I think all those things added <laughs> together, I think were it gave me some stuff that I was like I'm able to take positives away from this game. Whereas the second half, like yes, we know that we're going to struggle when pressed and str- struggle when the man marking breaks. And I think. That's not new. Like we know, that's a pro- that's a problem, and we're just gonna. I'd like to say that we're gonna. Alle- we would need to alleviate those problems, but I'm not sure we are actually gonna do that at any point this season. So I think we've just kind of live with it. Where it- so that that was the story of the second half, and it will be the story of many second halves throughout the rest of the season. I think I'd say I was pleasantly surprised by the first half. I think that's definitely true. That I'd say I was pleasantly surprised um, because I came into the game expecting Spurs to pretty much overwhelm us as they did in the game last season in, 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 a, in a similar, not not the same, but in a similar way because their individual talent is better than ours. So I, I agree with you, Tom. I was pleasantly surprised by the way that some of the things played out in the first half. Um, you could just see, I mean, even in the first half, in the last 15 minutes, I thought Spurs were getting on top then. It wasn't just in the second half. I thought they were they were already starting to take control at that point when we scored. So I would add that a lot of those positives were kind of taken away in the second half by the way that Spurs kind of took the game away from us, but that they were still there. So that's why I'm, I'm going to spin it as positively as I can. Yeah, a question that I was thinking of asking but didn't, um, but I will ask you now because I'm interested in what you think is that we focused on the the players who weren't there being a bad thing. Um, and I wonder if there's any extent to which there's there's good things that you can see from having maybe different personnel. Um, we've talked a lot about pace and tempo with Rafinha. We've talked a lot about uh, Rodrigo's centrality but also dropping out of the box. And I felt as though in the game at the weekend, we actually saw pretty... Um, standard Leeds United from the pre-Premier League era. Um, maybe that's because Mateus Klick was playing. I think we're going to talk about him later on, so I won't get too much into that. But it, it, it just felt as though we were progressing the ball into wide areas. We were doing that wide build-up and we were just sort of, OK, maybe not generating as many chances as, as maybe people may be suggesting, given the positivity that's around that first half. But it, it did feel as though a little bit more of a return to form in that sense. Did, did either of you have any think, thoughts on that? I'd, I'd completely agree with that. I think what I was expecting going to the game before I knew that Rafinha was out was I was expecting Spurs to kind of just do a job on him, like him to be marked out of the game, was to have no progression in wide areas. And that that kind of be that. But I think without him there, and I would, I would never really say that... We're a better team. We're a better team without Rafinha there, but we're a, the system kind of functions better, and I think it kind of allowed us to sort of. Bit, whilst we were more dominated at the left, we could like 
play on both sides and build up in both sides and click being in did help that. So I think there are that's one aspect to take. And then the other aspect I think is that the sent this like I've said before, the, the the central midfield is just better without Rodrigo in there. So the the Rodrigo one is like we we have said that that's that's the long running thing we've said. So I think there are those things that you can take from it, yeah. I'm not sure that I would want Stuart Dallas or Dan James playing ahead of Rafinha as a matter of course. Um and I'm not suggesting that you're saying that either. Um but but that that yeah, I guess when Rafinha's not there, it does force the players to go back to playing system based football rather than give it to Rafinha and cross your fingers, um which is which is what we've seen at times this season. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth mentioning that like this is the first time we've this season where we've looked at like getting the ball in a wide area, playing the ball across the box, and d- to be honest, it feels like one of the very few instances of us actually scoring a decent box shot, like six yard box shot, um, for sure as well. So I suppose there's that going for it. But yeah, obviously the the, the takeaway from this is not that. We shouldn't be playing Rafinha um, at all, but just I, I guess maybe maybe to focus on the this fact that the system does work well without those players in it. And I think part of the problem we have this season is that we've recruited badly because we've not recruited players who fit that system. And so part of the problem is is when we bring in our quote unquote better players, we're we're necessarily sort of denigrating the system a little bit as well. But no doubt this will be something that we um, talk about a little bit more in in the future. Um, Question number, I guess, three now, <laughs> because I've added one. But I'll go to you on this one, Darren. What what went wrong in the second half? Spurs moved higher up the pitch um, and pressed um, pressed us more directly, stopped us from progressing the ball easily, um, which not only impacts our build-up, but it impacts our press as well, um, which I know we're going to come on to talk about later. Um, and we just saw a kind of resumption of... Um, yeah, a complete inability to break out of our own half in any concerted way, um, and to to yeah, we couldn't progress the ball into the wide attacking areas like we could in the first half. So what we were relying on in the second half was primarily trying to get the ball in behind Spurs and hoping that Dan James could chase it and that we could the rest of the team could catch him up. Um, so so Spurs were not only pressing higher, but I also thought they used the ball in a much more direct way themselves in the in the second. And I don't mean direct kicking it long what I mean is they were passing with a lot more purpose uh, and and trying to move through us and, and running at us more directly so they kind of remembered um, or made a decision it sounds like Conte made a decision at half time to really alter their tactical style um, from a from kind of a, a mid block which I, I don't think they mid blocked well in the first half as well I don't think that helped them I thought they were really passive um, and didn't even press us in the in the middle or back third, but um, but once once they decided to kind of press us higher, that there it meant that because they were playing a similar style of football to the style of football that we ordinarily play, that that, that then becomes um, a battle of who's got the highest quality players on their team, and Spurs do, and that's why they won. Yeah, the quote from Conte actually is quite interesting, so I'll read that out now. Um, this is something that I went through in the tactical video analysis today on our patron channel so if this is interesting to you then do head over there and and i've done a video sort of breaking down what changed between the two halves but this is conte so he was he's basically asked about what what 
what he had done to make his team come out and be better in the second half. So he said for sure we needed to improve in the second half. Uh, I like to bring this intensity. I had a bit of perplexity whether to use this intensity for the start. I didn't know if we could bring this intensity for the whole, whole game. So it seems as though he decided to, to sort of come out in a mid-block in the first half just to to give his players the chance to to play long enough that they could then start playing more and more intensively as the game went on. Um, he said it was my decision. We were more compact in the first half and we left we left them to lead the possession. Second half, I chased, totally changed the situation and the tactical aspect. And also I said to them, we had to go man to man and play with the same intensity if we wanted to beat Leeds. We had to beat Leeds at what they're good at doing. So um, yeah, I think Darren's pretty much covered how that, uh, that one worked out. So let's move on to question um, four. So, um, Tom, what are your thoughts on Bielsa's decision to move Calvin Phillips into Diego Llorente's position and push Diego Llorente wide? On the Llorente sort of right back sort of um, side of it, I, I didn't like that at all. I just, I just didn't think that worked. I, I don't know. It's, I just, I've, I've, something I've heard people mention before is like when they're moved out of position, like for a centre back to a right back or a swap side, it's like it's just the, all the angles that they see of the game. It just kind of sort of throws them off a little bit, and I just. I think Llorente as well, he just he doesn't seem like a centre back that's suited to be pushed into those wide positions. So I wasn't really a fan of that. On on the Phillips sort of moving into the uh, to the centre back like I think he did alright and he did he did a bit of a job on Kane to be honest. I think he his job was to man mark Kane and he he did that well for the majority of the game, really. So I can't really go any faults on that. But yeah, I don't I don't want to see Llorente right back again. I was that just did not work for me at all. I can see that he wanted Llorente to mark Son because Son makes runs from outside to in, and that's something that Bielsa said in his press conference. Um, and I thought, yeah, I thought Llorente did reasonably well on Son for for the for the for the first half particularly. It does kind of expose some of Llorente's positional weakness, I think, um, in that that because he's kind of he's if you play at fullback and teams attack down the wide down the wide areas you're even more exposed than you would be at centre back where he, where his positional sense can be a bit mad anyway so i thought i thought there were there were occasional moments of madness i thought he used the ball reasonably well in the first half when he was under no pressure um but then in the second half it became it became a bit bit too frantic and i think he really struggled um as as the the whole team did but it just kind of it was a bit I, I really struggled to kind of logically follow Bielsa's thought process, if I'm honest. Because if you, if you move in, you know, kind of what is notionally best defensive midfielder into the centre-back area, moving what a lot of people consider to be the best centre-back at the club, obviously I don't think that, to right-back, that, and then using the club's actual best centre-back at left-back, who again did fine in the left-back area, but but isn't a left-back and hasn't got a lot of the attributes that you need to, to play that role. And then you're playing somebody who normally plays your right-back position on the right wing, who's a kind of, or on the right side of midfield rather, who's probably not hugely effective in that role. It just felt to me like, although the team played well in the first half, that in terms of trying to understand the logic of, of the flow of how those decisions were made, which I can ordinarily do with Bielsa, even if I sometimes disagree with the, the way that he's laid things out, I can at least normally understand the logic. I really struggle to think that that was a logical way of setting the team out yesterday. I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat as you insofar as like if you set up your team defensively, because that, I think Bielsa made it pretty clear that he wanted to have Llorente defending against Son. And he wanted to have Phillips defending against Kane, um, and then and then I guess Strauch over on 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 Lucas Moura as well is is a sort of defensive decision too. 
when you when you have a half like you do in the first half where the opposition don't actually put you under a huge amount of defensive pressure then I, I suppose the question is what do you lose by having those those players essentially playing I, I suppose build up play attacking play um, and I think w- when it came to the second half and then Spurs actually came out and pushed higher and, and put up a team under more defensive pressure. I didn't even think that it made much of a difference, really. I don't think I, I didn't feel as though I felt safer by having in the second half Calvin Phillips as a centre back or Diego Llorente as a as a as a right back, um, for example. So it, I, I don't know. It's it's one of those ones. I, I, I'm really struggling to read the game because it seems so palpably obvious to me that what changed has got nothing to do with Leeds and everything to do with Spurs that, that what do you actually take away from it in that sense um but maybe I'm maybe I'm just waffling I don't know if either, either of you have any thoughts on that I, I don't come away with it with any new conclusions really other than I don't really like Diego Llorente playing at right back and I probably could have told you that before the game anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so yeah I, I really do I really do struggle to find new yeah, new conclusions to draw from it. I agree with you, John. I, d- I don't think there's a... Yeah, it, it's difficult to, to read. It was a difficult game to read because of the way that Spurs approached it. Yeah, for sure. I haven't really got anything to add sort of on the Llorente Phillips sort of thing, but I think with the Stroud market, Lucas Moura, it was pretty obvious when Firpo came on that that... I, the, they might have been part of the tactical switch as well, but I just I thought that Stroud did a much better job than Firpo did. Did. It just we've seemed to concede so many more chances down that side when this it switched to Firpo marking Mora. So I did I did kind of like that aspect of it, but yeah, not on the Lorente. We're on some side of it. We're going to talk a little bit more about Phillips later on. So I'll, I'll move the the topic on to question five, which is there has been um, a lot of talk about Leeds getting tired because their press dropped off dropped off in the second half. Tom, do you agree with this, or do you think there may be other reasons why the press looked less assured in the second half? One thing that I thought straight away was that like Conte Conte's teams kind of sort of they like to when they're playing a high pressing team they like to invite the opposition on sort of slow build up invite the opposition on and then beat the press that way and the, I think I don't know if that was a purposeful thing they were doing in the, in the first half but that's kind of what it ended up being so I think that aspect of it will make our first half press look better than our second half press but something I think that you've touched on already Darren is that in the second half because they were pressing us so much higher and they were sort of man-marking us when we were building up, then we were going to go direct, so we didn't have players up there to press. So you can't really have an effective press where there's just there's like Dan James and Geld Hart and that's it. So I think I think the second half, once that Spurs started doing that, it just we didn't really have much chance to keep the press being effective, really. And, and Spurs moved the ball more directly, I think, in the second half, and particularly with the runners, which is always going to expose our press. So I don't buy the idea that Leeds tired... I just don't. I think that, and I think we've said this on the podcast before. That's something that that people always say when when I when when well when we're beaten for one thing, but but also when 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 the press isn't working, they think it's because we're tired. It's not. It's because the players are not in the right position to begin with to get the press off. Yeah, I think as soon as Spurs started pressuring us higher up the pitch, we're not able to build up. And usually when we build up, the, the whole point of build up is to get the ball and our team to the other side of the field. And obviously when you stop doing that well, you end up with half of your team not in the right, as you said, not in the right positions. And so 
I think there's a there's a correlation between the press being good and our control being good. If we build up in wide areas, basically the 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 press is designed so that if we lose the ball, we can then try and counter press it quickly and win it back or slow it slow the opposition down from um counter attacking us whereas i think when you when we when, what happens was is that when when spurs were, were just sitting so, so much higher we were one just seeing the center backs hit the ball into channels and then seeing the ball turned over so um you know you sort of a, an easy pass back to a goalkeeper or eric dyer as a center center back um and the other thing is, is that we were just sort of, we were also taking throw-ins down the line rather than what we usually do, which is again throw them back to the, the the back line and start the the build up again. So I think what happens is that when you when we lose control of the ball, we end up also losing control of the press because we can't get the players into the positions we want them to be in to initiate a good first press. Um, and and so the, I think there's 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 so much tied up with with because I, I guess I'd never really thought about it before this game, but I think this game is so interesting because it is a primer on the first half like how to lose to Leeds and in the second half how to beat Leeds that that it's made a lot of things for me anyway in my head a lot clearer because you know often we'll be we'll say well this team did this well and so they played well against us and and won and we did this against well against another team and we beat them whereas in this game we have examples of the same team within 45 minutes doing the same like different things and it having a completely different impact on on what was going on so i think my big takeaway from this game has been the press is as dependent upon us controlling the ball in order to be able to then press well as it is um about you know being tired or whatever anyone else will will talk about in terms of like the pressing stuff yeah and and it kind of adds adds an extra layer of clarity to what Bielsa I think I remember Bielsa saying it in his very first season at Leeds where he said we defend by having the ball and it's not just because you keep the ball and therefore the opponent don't have it it's so you can keep people in good positions so that if we do lose it that that they're in good positions to then press and win the ball back so yeah right final question I'll go with you on this Darren what did you make of Mateus Click? so I've always thought that the gap between what people say is a poor Mateus Click performance and what people say is a good Mateus Click performance is actually quite slim in it and, and what, what makes the difference is whether he finds his passes or not generally is, is the difference between those two performances so he did the things well yesterday that he always does well which is he he runs and drags people around he makes really intelligent runs out to the wide areas to try and facilitate the build up he'll he'll quite often look like he's going to make the same run as another player and then divert off into a different direction confusing people he presses really intelligently so if if Leeds do lose the ball um he'll always know exactly where he needs to run to in order to cover the passing lane or to pick up his man or to make sure that he kills uh, kills a an, an attack in its in its infancy i thought i thought he was i thought he was good i always think he's good though like I, like i kind of alluded to earlier i i think i think he he is the player that when he plays <clears throat> and particularly when he plays with good protection behind him knits the whole thing together um, and in the first half, that's what he had. He had he had Forshaw doing a really great job in terms of doing the neat and tidy behind him, which means that he's got a really good platform to build on, and and that he can he can make sure that he commits to the press because he knows that there's a good cover behind him. Then he can also make the good intelligent runs into into good spaces to drag people around because he knows that Forshaw is going to take up a really intelligent position to kind of snuff out any breaks that might come from behind him. Good stuff. Well, enough of my questions. Let's hand over to you two. So we'll kick off with you, Tom, in the bring a topic section. So what is it that you wanted us to talk about this week? Yeah, so I just wanted to say, can we just talk about the midfield with actual midfielders in it? 
because it's it's just nice for a change to to see that happen because we have, we don't it doesn't happen very often um we cause we were obviously all very very impressed with Forshaw when he played against Leicester um and then I think like I didn't sort of follow on from the last question you had click into that and it just it's kind of we we always like get excited about that first that first 10 games of Bielsa's second season when we had that Phillips click for sure midfield and it was like the first time we'd seen that probably since then and I it would just thought I'd just quite like to talk about it because it was quite nice for 45 minutes it was nice for 45 minutes and <laughs> uh, and but but I guess I guess yeah it's nice having an, an actual midfield and those players and and all the attributes that they bring I guess the concern for that is that then they weren't able to address some of the problems which were brought about um, in the second half. Um, but it is just like I'm, I'm really loving watching Forshaw have his comeback um, because he's he, although like I don't you know I don't know whether he's as mobile as he was. He probably is to be honest. He's still he's still doing all the things that you'd that you'd want him to do um, by and large. Um, and yeah, he. Yeah, him and Click together is probably, in terms of profile, anyway, a, 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 you know, a, a really good kind of combination of, of things that you'd be looking for. You know, wh- how long those two players can continue to form the basis of any midfield is, I guess, open to open to question given their respective injuries, uh, histories, and ages. But um, but certainly, yeah, it's lovely to see them playing together again and 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 combining in in not necessarily combining in terms of passing the ball to each other but combining in terms of the skill dovetail How would you like to look 5 years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That they bring. My interest in this would be in terms of like the, the pressing side of things. Because I think a lot of this comes... Well, a lot of this comes down to we played with two midfielders on Sunday. Um, and sometimes the midfield can have a tendency to feel quite empty. Um, when we play with two midfielders, largely because we tend to go horizontal anyway. So 
in in possession for sure players where he did played as the the lower of the two players he played as the pivot and then you've got click in front of him which means that if in situations where you lose the ball in transition you obviously have a pretty empty midfield so um did did he were both of you pretty happy with that were you did you did you feel as though we weren't really seeding a huge amount of chances in the midfield area it's a game of two halves isn't it it's <laughs> yeah. a game of two halves john uh, I, I i felt like we managed it well in the first half um, but that but primarily because Spurs didn't run it as directly and didn't move the ball as directly as they did they came to in the second half so um, I, I yeah I, I, it is more challenging when we play with a two-man midfield I completely agree with you and, and that might be part of the reason why Spurs overwhelmed us uh, were able to overwhelm us in the second half I think there are more fundamental reasons than that though to be honest um, which we'll probably come on to the, pre- the pressing up front was a I don't think it was bad but it wasn't really helped because there were times when Eric Dyer was kind of sort of just left with acres of space and he didn't complete, completely take advantage of it in the way that we've seen some centre-backs do it but it did leave him a lot of space to sort of pick a pass and sort of like that kind of doesn't help with the press not being effective in that way it does make their job harder mm, I think in the first half like their their whole um, approach was to get the ball to Dyer, who could then play it into a central space and they had both of their wide forwards dropping in deep and narrow uh, and so the idea was to to try and find those players I think on the ball and then create space in wide areas that you could then hit their the wing backs um, at their overlapping wing backs going into that and I think we did quite well in the first half because we were just because we're so tight on the, those players um, they just they weren't really able to pick the ball up and turn very often um, and I think in that situation in that sense I think that the midfield sort of worked um, fine but I think the difference was in the second half as we've said is that rather than trying to build them trying to build up from the back it felt a lot more like they were just winning the ball back in the midfield and then able to sort of spring counters from there which meant that again as we've said before that the the pressing was maybe a little bit off because the team weren't set in quite the same way as they were in the first half let's move on Darren what did you want to talk about I want to talk about Tyler Roberts again. I'm really sorry. I know we talk about Tyler Roberts a lot, but I, I, I don't want to necessarily talk about his performance yesterday because I, I thought he was poor yesterday and I don't think I've got no argument with that. But what what I did want to talk about was something a bit more fundamental, really. So my question is this. If Tyler Roberts can't get a start in a squad that's missing the players that we were missing yesterday, what does that say about where he sits in Bielsa's thinking right now? And what does it say for his career uh, at Leeds anyway? Um, so I just, yeah, I wanted to just pull it up as a, as a not a, is Tyler Roberts good or not discussion? Because I think we've had that one to death. But just, just where, where he sits in terms of his career path right now, given that he couldn't even get in the 11 yesterday. Yeah, it's it's difficult because if he, if he was going to play yesterday, you would think it was up front in place in place of Geldar and yeah the fact that he didn't play there and it, it, the fact it was also the fact that he played f- did he play 30 minutes for the under 21s on Friday which which is like that was just unusual in itself I don't know if he was trying something out with with the view that he was going to maybe play at the weekend or what but if he's if he's not if he's what third choice for the play in number nine he's quite low down the centre mids now even the fact that with then I just I just don't see him sort of making it as a starter this year or like even being like a functional squad player. So I think he just looks absolutely gone with his confidence at the moment. And I think he just looks like someone that would definitely need a loan to the championship just to sort of rediscover some form. My only problem with that is that I don't I don't know and I don't think anyone really knows what his best position is. Like is he a nine? Is he a 
attacking mid. And if you went to a team in the championship, like would would they know? Because like you, you'd obviously loan him to a player place where he's going to get games. But if they if they don't know if they don't know if they need him for that position or not, it's difficult. But I think that's the that's the only real answer I can see at the moment. I'm with you. I think in insofar as it feels as though he's got into a rut. We've talked a lot on this channel about about Roberts like not playing as bad as people are saying, and I think a lot of people have interpret that as us saying that he's good enough to be playing at this level in that position. And I think the problem is is that last season he, he got that chance and, and didn't really succeed. But this season it just feels as though the guy just, just has no chance to, to really prove himself because he's coming on 20 minutes to go and he comes on up front. Five minutes later he's moved into a midfield and then 10 minutes later he's moved back up front with a different partner. I think even even happened a bit. Um, at the weekend um, where he came on I think he, who did he replace he came on for uh, Forsh Forshaw yes, yeah he came on for Forshaw and went into the midfield and then Gelhart came off for McKinstry right and then he went in up front alongside uh, James as well so I, I, I just kind of feel as though he's just not been given a real fair chance of, of being able to, to prove himself and no doubt that's because he didn't take the opportunity when it came last season but it just feels as though he's in a rut now and I think it's not helping him and it's not helping the team at the moment to have him being used as a sub and so I think just the best thing you can do for his career is to just send him out on loan somewhere or even sell him somewhere where that where he'll get played more regularly because yeah I, d- I just don't think it's fair on on him particularly at this point yeah I agree I want him to get loans of the championship and to play as a nine because I think that's the only place where he's really going to make a make a decent career for himself Well, enough of us. Time for the listeners to have their say. So let's bring in the listeners' questions. Uh, so question one uh, is from Tora B. Pedersen, um, who says, have we ever been good at playing through the high press? Seems like we've had passing pa- patterns earlier, but might be championship versus Premier League quality in the press. So um, we talk about the press, uh, uh, I suppose, playing through the press quite a lot. But let's let's just talk about it maybe in a little bit more detail. So, Darren, what, what's your take on this? What, why, is, why do we have such a big problem playing through presses? OK, so um, in the Championship, we rarely, re- rarely, if ever, truly face the press. There might have been times when, when an, an opposition might have one or two players who were chasing the ball up front but they were relatively easy to play around because yeah because we 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 outnumbered them and and Bielsa's um possession structures were able to kind of get through that really really quickly um but in in the in the few games when we were consistently pressed um Hobbsy mentioned a game away to Preston in the championship there was the Barnsley game at the end of the promotion season it's something we've always always really struggled with and i th- i think that that i mean the whole purpose <coughs> excuse me the whole purpose of a press is to disrupt build up in the way that it does with us isn't it that's that's kind of what it's for and and a, a well structured press should be able to limit most teams in build up i would i would suggest apart from maybe the very top the top teams so i think there's there's a kind of um yeah i i, th- I think we probably just don't quite have the quality of player in all the positions so we we might be, we might have players in certain positions who are decent at playing through a press so i think i think Furpo is actually okay at dealing with the press or certainly better than Alioski was i think when Luke Aylin's playing well he's decent at playing through a press um i think i think 
Strauch is pretty calm in possession, um, and I think I think those are the qualities that you need. And I just don't think we have enough of those qualities in enough positions to be able to kind of consistently find our way through through a press, and and that's why they're effective against us. I think it's also worth saying as well that the the part of the problem with our press is that when our press doesn't work, our other option is to, and this is going to pain you, Darren, but is to get the keeper playing it long into the next line of, I, I suppose, beyond the press into the next line of, uh, of attack. Um, and on the one hand, I don't think Melier is at this stage good enough at those sorts of passes. And two, I don't think we, that part of the problem with our system is that we encourage players who are, um, who are quite nippy, quite mobile for the pressing, and so they they aren't quite so tall, perhaps as you might have with other players in those positions, and so they're not able to take the ball down and and hold the ball. And then, if you can do that, obviously you then you then take away a huge upside of why an opposition team might press in the first place. And so I think part of the reason why we're so yeah we're, we're, we're just so susceptible to the high press is because we don't really have the ability to plan b anything there um and and so we we end up just doing as we did against spurs just losing the ball in that second space in the midfield area where you try and play it over the top and then it breaks down and then the opposition come at you again uh, if you win the ball back you then have the same problem again of trying to build up through a high press and so you can get into those cyclical um, phases of just of not being able to keep the ball long enough um, and and move it through that high press to be to be useful. So yeah, Tom, do you have any thoughts on on that aspect of it? Like you said, Darren, we need press resistant players to deal with this. At the moment, we're pretty short on those. So I still think that if we, we, we if and when Verpo gets up to speed and when Ailing comes back, I still think we will struggle to deal with those players uh, to deal with a, a well coordinated press. But yesterday we were lacking those players that could deal with it. So it it was always it was never going to end well when Spurs started pressing in the way they did. Question from Neb who says, how much of an issue is Melier's distribution? Oh, funnily enough, we've just talked about that. He gave the ball back to Spurs countless times today when he had safer options nearby. Darren, I know that you'll have thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I, I do. Um, I watched, uh, just before we came on air, I watched all of um, Melier's game involvements from yesterday. And the, the it, I mean, like I'm just repeating things from earlier, really. There is a marked and notable difference between Melier's distribution in the first half and in the second half. So in, in the first half, the vast majority of his distributions were short, um, short passes to the full-backs or to the centre-backs and they were under very little pressure with Spurs giving us all the time in the world to pick our way through it. And therefore, Melier's distribution was fine. In the second half... um. I partly agree with the question. I don't agree that there were easier options on because the few times that Melier did pass it short in the second half, <clears throat> Spurs press meant that we weren't able to get out and, and therefore that proved to be the wrong option in, in, the, in the fullness of time. I do agree that the percentage of passes that he managed to hit longer accurately in the second half was too low um, and mostly what that was was floating the ball into touch um, over Jack Harrison. Um, or um, or Dallas or James on the other side, um, and you know those passes are really are very difficult. You know they're kind of forty to fifty yard passes into a very small area, but um, and generally looking for Harrison's chest or head, which is probably not. I don't think Harrison's particularly tall. Don't think he's particularly good in the air. Um, so I think yeah, I, I I do agree with part of the question. I think I think his long distribution wasn't wasn't up to spec yesterday. I haven't really got anything to add on that, but I would like to ask another question. Um, 
about the first goal, about your kind of thoughts on that, Darren, because I think we're probably going to disagree on this one. Uh, if you're trying to blame him for the first goal, Tom, you're just wrong, and I'm going to send you home. I'm not, I'm <laughs> okay. No, uh, no. Um, so, okay. So here, here's, if, from a goalkeeping point of view, here's, here's what I think. He he does absolutely the right thing initially to come out and t- because he forces Lucas to turn around. He, he forces him away from goal by moving proactively towards the ball. So he blocks off the shot. He also turns him away from the goal. So I think that's I think that's good. I think that then when the ball goes back into the middle. Um, I think you could argue that he doesn't get back into the middle of the goal to get set quickly enough. I think the part of the reason that he does that is because he thinks if I barrel right across really quickly, get in the middle, then the shot's going to come into what was his near post when Mora had it to Melier's right hand side and catch him going the wrong way, and he's he's probably going to be off his balance. And I, th- I think I think it's all about him not being able to get into position where where he's going to get set because there's just not time to get into the middle middle of the goal and get set. So he's got to take a punt on which side he thinks the shot's going to come. In the end, it kind of trickles across him and you know his, his footwork probably isn't quite good enough there because he's, he's running across the goal, getting his feet crossing each other rather than kind of doing the shuffle to the side, which you would ordinarily do. But I think primarily the, the marking system has broken down. The cross has come in too easily. Moore has got away from his man. So it's it's a kind of confluence of factors, but I I don't hold Melier primarily responsible for the goal. I think I think he holds a part in it, but I also think most of the rest of the defence hold a part of it, in it too. I won't ever be drawn into goalkeeping chat because I don't know what I'm talking about, but I did feel as though he was maybe jumping in a little bit, that's all. But let's move on to the, the final question then. And this I think we'll just meld this into our Statric Bamford section, which is a section where we discuss an interesting aspect of the game from a statistical point of view. Um, so the question was from Tom HC, who said, would you agree that Phillips lost his impact when he moved from centre-back to midfield, which we've already talked about a little bit, but Tom says he also seemed tired at that point to me. When he was beaten, he didn't seem to chase back, and then that left the defence out of shape and in turn made Spurs look more dangerous. Um, in answering this question, I think it's good to go to the um, to, to the data because I've noticed just looking back through the season that up until uh, before he got injured um, and was out before the Norwich game, um, um, Phillips hadn't been passed by dribblers. Uh, more than once in any game. So you've got uh, versus Everton, he was dribbled past once. Versus Burnley, he was dribbled past once. Versus Liverpool, he was dribbled past once. Versus Newcastle, he was dribbled past once. Versus West Ham and Watford, no dribbles passed. And then suddenly we hit Norwich and he gets dribbled past six times in that game. In the Leicester game, he gets dribbled past three times. And then in the Tottenham game, he gets dribbled past four times. Um, so I'll, I'll hand this over to you guys, Um and and just sort of ask what on earth happened with Calvin Phillips that suddenly made him a liability against dribbling players. I think the injury will be some factor in that, or I'd I'd like to think it was because he just it's, there's quite a nice sort of little divide there between before injury and after injury. And the only other thing that I could really think of was like he's, we've played in the, those games where he's been dribbled past a lot. We've played in like a three-five-two or in a different formation compared to normal. And I just wonder if that's had some sort of factor in it that. The, the where he's playing means that he's either more susceptible to being dribbled past because he's not in a position that he's comfortable with or it just means that the the opposition like because he's if he's ever playing in a flatter fat, sort of midfield or what that the players can just dribble past him easier and I, I haven't got any evidence to back that up but it just kind of me sort of suggesting that that's a potential reason I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that 
I'm stumped on this one to be honest. I I, I wish I had a nice theory that I could posit, um, but unfortunately, I I just I just don't. I'm really I am surprised, really surprised to see that kind of drop off in that um, individual element of 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 his his performance. John, do you have a theory? I bet you've got a theory. Yeah, but nothing more than like the injury stuff, perhaps as well. Insofar as he went out with a calf strain, but then we were hearing when he came back in that he's got a long term hip problem. And whenever I hear long term hip problem, I always I, it always makes me think about like what impact does that have on a player's mobility? If he is not able to be as athletic as he usually is, then it will it will presumably have an impact. And it's, you mentioned him being maybe lead and foot in possession. Darren uh, and I think that he's worse this season than he was last season in that respect I don't think he's as good under pressure uh, when he's on the ball and I think that's impacting him a lot and I, I think it's interesting that he was put into central midfield and then dropped back out into into the centre-back position um, off the basis of that because I suppose if you are suffering a little bit with an ability to to, to be mobile in those situations then uh, it can it can impact you and I feel as though this season what he's been good at uh, People were people were raving about his performance against Kane in the first half, but I think that often what happens in those situations it, it, it feels as though he's cleaning up as the second man, so someone else is stepping in in front of him, and then he's able to clean clean up afterwards. And I think he performs quite well in that situation. Yeah, I was going to say I think he defended quite well in a zonal sense yesterday, rather than a man marking sense. And and I think the plaudits for that are absolutely fair and for, you know right and proper because it's not always the case with every defender we've got. I just wonder whether or not once you're in the once you're then in the central midfield situation and the players are running at you, you know, it's got nothing to do with as you've said, positional awareness and everything to do with just sheer athleticism, which in the past has obviously served him so well. But if his if his hip isn't quite the right level, then maybe that maybe that answers that that question. Right, we've got a game against Brighton this Saturday, and then we've got a very quick fire game straight after against Palace. So this week. Our preview episode on the Patreon channel will actually be a double header preview. So we'll be uh, having interviews with fans from Brighton and and Palace, and then I think it's just going to be me and Darren um, talking about the, the the bare bones of of, the, of that preview. So we've got a bit of time here to talk about the Brighton game. So uh, let's make the most of it. So Brighton, an interesting prospect. Obviously, they were our nemesis last season. And this season, it's sort of been a, a bit of a flip on its head for, for for Brighton because last season they were putting up really good numbers but um, weren't getting the results and were, were sort of in a relegation battle, really, until the very end of the season. Uh, this season, they've managed to track their XG pretty much and that has put them comfortably in the top half at the moment, although they are winless in eight games, um, but they have drawn six of those. So lots of interesting narrative threads there to talk about. The one that I wanted to talk about is I noticed yesterday that Graham Potter was at the Tottenham Stadium. And as I've already mentioned, that's a sort of masterclass game in how to beat us in a 3-4-3 and also how to look bad against us in a 3-4-3. How worried are you two that 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 will sort of nail in his mind the sort of approach that he should take in this game, given that the last two times we played them, they played a 3-4-3 and looked pretty comfortable? I mean, I think they were going to probably do that anyway because they pretty much had our number last year playing that style. So, yeah, if he, if he had for any reason had any doubts about playing like that, then I think they're gone. But they they caused us so many problems. My worry about that is that I don't know how we fix those the problems that we saw in the two games last year. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I am a bit worried about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they will take a different approach, won't they? So they'll they'll do what they did last year, which was to funnel us out wide and then and then 
presses in those wide areas and to encircle the uh, the defensive midfielder and make sure that they can't get into the game in any meaningful way. So that's a different. It is a different approach from from what Spurs did yesterday, which is much more like what Arsenal um, do against us and tend to press right upon us. Um, so I, I don't think Graham Potter needs any tuition in in how to set up a three four three against us. <laughs> um, I, I just think we'll see. Yeah, we'll see a, a very similar approach in terms of what they do that that we did in the. Uh, last in the two games last season, and you know I'm not I'm not really certain what we'll be able to do to to change the pattern of the. I mean, we, the outcome may may be different, of course, and but I'm not I'm not really sure how we'll change the pattern of the two games that we saw last season. What did either of you two want to talk about? Do you, do, is there anything that's sort of standing out in your heads? There's nothing that I really particularly want to talk about it kind of follows on from your point that I'm kind of interested just to see if we can actually build up in wide areas uh, because the, the, yeah like you say down the way they funnel us into those areas and press us that we just we couldn't really get any further than those areas so I think like we've mentioned throughout the podcast that click does help that so I, I just hope that he plays and that, that he can help us function in those areas but I'm just I don't really have much confidence that we can do that so I just I think we need to find another way of going around those areas but I'm not really sure what it is that's my that's my worry there are two things I'm looking for one of which is a more logical team selection than than happened yesterday um and and I think that includes putting Junior Firpo in at, at, at left back so that he because uh, it will be a 4-4-2 so that he can support the build-up in wide areas and I'm also interested to see <coughs> what difference Forshaw makes in terms of because one of the things that marked out last season that it was in in both games it was Pascal Strauch in the first game and Robin Cock in the second game they, they weren't really able to get into the game um, and they were left isolated and the team were bifurcated into two units of five that never really linked up um, so I'm interested to see whether Forshaw can act as a link between the two units of the team and try to draw things together little bit more um and i you know i think i think if anyone can do it within our squad he can um but it will be it will be really interesting uh, to see although i won't be watching the game because i'll be um taking my son to see hamilton for his birthday so i'll, I'll get a nice I, yeah it'd be nice i'll get to watch it on sunday or maybe i won't watch it on sunday depending on what our group chat says <laughs> um when i get back from the theater <laughs> I guess the one thing I would add to to what you're both saying is one of the the things that were was missing last season was Rafinha. I don't think he played in either of these two games um, last season. So um, I guess the question is, what difference would a Rafinha make to this? And then, well, let's talk about that first, and then I'll come into my second one. So thoughts on Rafinha making a big difference? Like, what difference will someone who's good at dribbling the ball make in in a game like this? I suppose it depends where he, where he's able to get on the ball and what decisions he makes when he picks it up because we know that at times like um, John you were at the Watford game with me and you know how frustrating I found him in that game because he kept just picking the ball up on halfway and then pissing it away so if he does that I'm not going to be happy because he's just going to be um, you know fundamentally feeding the problems what we need from him is exactly what you've described is to try pick the ball and run at people and try beat people and try and pull them out of their shape which is what we really struggled to do last year so he he does have the capacity uh, to really help us to to, to change the, to really change the game um, and I, I am hopeful that whatever the illness is that he's got that he is able to make it um, into the into the team on Saturday because it it might be exactly the sort of game where we need vibes. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is is that if you're moving Pascal Strauch out of left back and you've got presumably Cooper and uh, let's say Urente probably as a right centre back, um, you said that you wanted to see Forshaw 
in that midfield. But presumably Phillips will be playing there and Vorshaw will be playing there as well. So surely Phillips will play as the deeper of those two. And did we just see Click drop, dropping out, which is something that Tom suggested that he wanted to see as well. So how do we how do we fit all of those pegs together? That's a fair point. <laughs> yeah, actually, you, you, you want you want Strauk in and you want Click in. And from what you're saying, unless we see Strauk at left back, I doubt we're going to see either. Which, yeah. No, that's that's fair. Um, maybe uh, we drop Llorente and play Calvin Phillips as the right centre-back. <laughs> so, sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, but even still, you've got the same problem in central midfield. Yeah. You can't oh. have Strout, Click and Forshaw all in the same midfield. No, that's true. So we play Furpo left mid, and then we play Strout at left back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but in terms of the midfield, though, I think it's interesting. Like, no, it is an interesting Assuming debate. we're going to play a two-man midfield, do, do you go with... I mean, this is the problem when you when you want to play someone like Phillips, who who is obviously a pivot player, but usually sits in a defensive role in, in as a, as a single pivot in that sense, not a pivot, but like as a defensive midfielder. Um, when we've seen this happen in the past, we've seen um, we've seen like Click and Shackleton in the same midfield, and they obviously sit a little bit flatter and can push forward. Um, so does that does that suggest that you would like to see maybe a four-shot Click midfield in this situation, or do you think it will just be fine to have Phillips pushing f- slightly further forward? I think it's fine to have Philip, Phillips um, pushing further forward. Um, I think I think he presses, he can press well in that situation. He, he's he's you know, I, I do enjoy it when he pushes right up onto there, onto the opposition's double pivot because I think that does make them vulnerable to his pressing ability. Um, in terms of who I'd prefer out of, I guess, Click and Forshaw, um, like for all the for all the reasons that I said earlier, I love having Matis Click in the team. I, I do think it's dependent upon him having um, on him having the solidity behind him, and also I do I do think that Forshaw is better at linking the two units of the team up better than Clickers because I think Click's temptation is to, is to drive forward into the front line rather than kind of dropping deeper in and picking the ball up and helping the build up in that way. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't really know and I'm glad I don't have to make the decision because it would be like <laughs> be like killing one of my favourite children or something, which I don't want to do. Um, but yeah, I may, mm, yeah, let me think about it and I'll tell you in the preview, John. <laughs> this, this, this conversation just affirms to me like how bonkers a man-market system is because you could just play a nice solo mid-block and you could play Phillips for sure and click and we could just have been nice. We could build up really nicely, but that's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> and uh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode <laughs> nicely. So as I've said, we will be doing a doubleheader preview episode on our Patreon channel, which will be dropping probably Thursday, uh, maybe Wednesday night. But if that sounds interesting to you, then head over to our Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash all stats, aren't we? And that brings us to the very end of this podcast. And all there is for me to do is to say thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.